0: Hey, this is Kevin from Kevin's Barbecue Joints and welcome to Kevin's Barbecue Joints podcast. Welcome to episode 8 of Wine and Barbecue with Aaron Fegis from Fegis Barbecue in Houston, Texas. In this episode, we talked to Jordan Salcido from Ramona Wine, sommelier created sparkling wines and spritzes made with the highest quality organic ingredients and sustainable production methods and they're killer if you're just listening to this podcast side i'd jump to the youtube side just to see in the montage you see the cans it's like they come in four packs a four pack of cans and a four pack of cans equals one and a third bottles of wine they come in a number of flavors so delicious so refreshing the packaging is awesome but jordan is awesome and she's talking to us from france So she's in France, Erin is in Texas, and Houston, Texas, and I'm in Los Angeles. So it was kind of cool to do this on multiple time zones. She comes with a pedigree that is just phenomenal. We hear her entire path, and as we hear about her path, she's interesting and engaging, and I think that you'll find it fascinating, and you'll find a lot of things that touch within yourself when you hear about her path. But notably, she was a sommelier at Eleven Madison Park in New York. She also ran the beverage program for David Chang's Momofuku Empire. So we get deep into both of those things and those worlds because those are worlds that not many people have been a part of. So we get to learn what it was like working for both of those and then how Ramona came about and how difficult it was and all the challenges, but how wonderful it was too and how these little coincidences or so-called coincidences happened in her life that propelled her and nudged her along the way to where she is today. And in the latter part of the interview, we do talk lot about the product and what makes the product so special. So I know you're going to enjoy this. You're going to learn a lot. It's a great one. It's really intriguing, really interesting. And at the very end of this, we do talk about some Fijis stuff, which we do at the end of every interview about things that are coming up and especially to very soon after Halloween is over, Thanksgiving begins. So if you're interested in the back of your mind of using Fijis, either getting from the location or ordering from Gold Belly for them. Keep checking their social media. I'll put all that stuff below so that you could jump on board because the day after Halloween, boom. On the Ramona side, if you're interested in ordering, they're at all the Whole Foods as well as they have an online shop at drinkramona.com, And we have a special promo code for the show. It's Ramona 15 so you could use that at checkout and get 15% off and on the the Ramona website they also have merch as well as a club so there's a lot of cool stuff but thanks so much for listening sit back relax and enjoy this conversation with Jordan Salcedo from Ramona
1: you are like part of the OG we met on like the very it was like the first month that Ramona existed really yeah yes yeah. So Aaron was like a very much an OG Ramona fan and supporter. And um, we had so many, com- we talked about like parenthood. We talked about so many things at that beautiful outdoor lunch table.
0: Was this,
2: I in, have this very, was in Houston? very fun memories? Yes. Ah, it was cool. at a restaurant called Giacomo's, which has a really great patio in River Oaks and and a really good wine list too. And it was, I don't know, maybe a group of 10 women in wine. It was a really good group. It was small, so it was really intimate. And for a lot of us, it was like our first time to meet Jordan and then really get to know you and the wines. And and just like, I feel like it was a great and excellent uh, opportunity to, meet someone in wine that was really kind of on the cusp of doing some really great things but had also already done some really great things like you were definitely already sitting at that table with a great resume and a lot to be proud of and very accomplished but you certainly were very just genuine and open and thank you for your flexibility uh, that crazy week um so oh, of course
1: thank
2: we're, you we're very happy to have you um on the podcast now
0: yeah mm-hmm. definitely i was going to crack this. Open. I'm ready to
2: camera. go. I love that. I'm
0: ready to go too. <laughs> I've got up? a
2: wine glass in case no, I, no, I want right, to go. Same. Same. <laughs> yeah, same
0: here. Sure. So what city in France are you living in?
1: I, I am in Paris right now. Ah. And we, we landed here about two weeks ago.
2: And and it's a work vacation family thing, right?
1: Yes, that's about a year. So I've been'll I'll be going back, wow. back and forth. but like the boys are in school here in France, so they they just started their
2: first week of French school.
0: So so refreshing. like it's honestly. Yeah. ridiculous like and i'm not just saying that because you're here it's the
2: best best breakfast drink there
0: is yeah it's so funny it's because you're in you're in france and what time is it there
1: it's
2: 7 7 p.m it's a perfect time
0: and it's 10 7 a.m here in los
2: angeles (laughs) also a perfect time to be that's the thing about ramona people are like why do you like it so much and i'm like first of all you have to try it it's very delicious but secondly like it's Great to consume in all sorts of situations, at the beach, at lunch, for breakfast, for dinner. There's no bad time for it, and it kind of always, it just always fits. Plus, grapefruit is my favorite citrus flavor, so I thoroughly enjoy it.
0: And, it's, and it, is, it is remarkable that, what, four, four cans equal, what, it's a bottle and a half of one?
1: Yes. A bottle and a third, a third.
0: A third. Okay. Exactly. Yeah,
1: yeah. So three cans is the <laughs> same volume equivalent as a bottle of wine,
0: which messes with your head a little bit. Totally. I, mean, I guess yeah, as, was... as you've drank, <laughs> you drink more, you probably, <laughs> probably messes even more, but it's just hard to conceptualize that that would be the potency.
1: Sometimes I'll get, and I, I, sometimes I'll get texts from friends and they'll be like, Oh my God, this is delicious. But like how much, Alcohol is in here. And I'm like, 7%. How many of you had? And they're like, four. Like, that's a lot.
0: Right,
1: You're suffering. doing
0: good. <laughs> well, good evening to you.
1: And good morning to you.
0: Thank you. And good afternoon to you, Erin.
1: Good afternoon. Yeah, I love it.
0: Thank you so much for taking the time. We're extremely excited.
1: Goodness. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm very, I'm very excited. and very
0: honored to be here. It's, uh, it's episode eight. So we're, it's, we've been pretty consistent. It's, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. It's as I wouldn't, as I've mentioned, I've mentioned before on the show is once, once I realized what Aaron and Patrick were doing with spring branch and having wine pairings, I just knew that this was something I I love wine and barbecue together. I think it's ideal. And so it, I, I broached the, the concept to uh, Aaron it worked and people seem to like it. So it's
1: And it's like that genius marriage of high, low and with, with high standards. So it's like the thing that is like high standards and it doesn't have to be this impossible barrier to entry. Great wine is something that anyone at any point in their journey can appreciate. And yes, there are lots of facts to memorize if you want to go down that rabbit hole, but you could also just enjoy it for the sake of enjoying it and then do digging down whatever path inspires your curiosity.
0: That's one of the things too, is it, it seems intimidating to a lot of people. And I think what you've done too, is you've even made it even more accessible because this is something that people who possibly are scared to drink wine, this tastes delicious. It's just.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I normally don't admit this publicly, but my two-year-old really likes Ramona and I don't let him have much of it, but I don't let him have much candy, because I'm like, you know what, I don't actually know what's in that. But I, yeah, okay, is well, grapes, and it's citrus, and it's organic, and we're not adding any weird secret chemicals like velcroin or you know, things that get added as a preservative and then not not listed. And so it's, it's one of those things that I, I guess like a fun analogy or just a fun factoid is that like moose and deer and animals in the wilderness will eat fermenting grapes or berries or whatever it is that they'll eat fermenting fruit and then they they get like a little bit of a a little bit of a buzz and so it's it's sort of like grapes ferment uh, fruit ferments and it's there it doesn't have to be. Um, but I, maybe I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not advocating for underage drinking. I'm not.
0: <laughs> no, that's, drinking
1: two-year-old.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's no Ramona junior line exactly.
1: coming out. <laughs> no, <laughs> now my six-year-old's like, when are you making one that I can drink without alcohol? We'll work on that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How about 15 years down the line? you could work Exactly. On it. <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> he's a, very, he's a very good rule follower he's like this is not for me I'm like great <laughs> like when I'm 21 I can have this like, that sounds perfect
0: yeah That's but in perfect. France 18 right I think it
1: is yeah it is 18. 17, 18 exactly exactly well and that was a thing that my parents were always really conscious of was that they didn't want to make wine taboo and my dad's father so my dad's dad died when my dad was 13 oh. and and he never, he, he talks almost never about his own father. And the one memory that he's shared at all is that they used to make wine together in their basement oh. in Waterbury, Connecticut. And so it was, I'm sure not very good wine. It wasn't about that. It was just sort of you know this tradition that had been brought over from uh, my grandfather's community in Italy and everyone just made wine in the basement. And In their Italian American community in Waterbury, Connecticut. And so that was, it was, there was already this connective tissue between wine and other generations that existed since I can remember. And so it was sort of, yeah, I think my my parents didn't want us to be afraid of wine. Of course, they were not. Yeah. Yeah, it was just if they were drinking a bottle, then we could have a sip. And I didn't really enjoy it particularly for most of my life until probably college but it it was never a thing that was off limits it was like if you want to try some of this wine go
2: for it that's how you know that's how my parents were too and we traveled in Europe a lot when we were when I was younger and we did a lot of wine I mean we really experienced a lot of wine stuff when we were in Europe and it was all I was always invited to come up and try and I don't think I really enjoyed it I was you know, 13, 14, 15, and then through high school, wasn't necessarily that I really liked the wine, but I think it was really important to them that I appreciated it and that I understood when it was a good, like, when is it acceptable to drink wine and how much, right at a dinner table with, you know, while you're eating a meal or not at a bar when you're pounding, you know, glass after glass after glass or just like, not for the sake of getting drunk, but yeah. for the completion of like a meal or really to just like enjoy the dining experience. And that stuck with me. So I'm really glad that they did focus on that. Although I also did the other extreme of, of understanding when to enjoy wine as well. Yes. Well, it, it was so, such a
1: gift, I think, that I, didn't, that I didn't realize was a gift until later in life. But it's, isn't it interesting where you can look back and sort of connect these dots that, um, like these little coincidences or yeah. these
0: That you never of- realized were part of the path.
1: Yes, yes, exactly.
0: It, and it's, yeah, it's interesting, but for me, my, my parents, they drank one, but they didn't really, I don't think they knew what they, they were, it was like blue nun. They were very in like the seventies, eighties, like whatever was the, the kind of like the, the hip yeah. drink that people were drinking. It was just sort of what was around, but uh, yeah. it, it wasn't until later, it wasn't until I actually visited wineries and vineyards that I realized what went into the process and how magical it seemed to be that that's when I really, for me, that was the epiphany.
2: So I've got to just as we're getting started, one of the things that I'm really excited to talk to you about Jordan, because we're a barbecue and wine podcast, but we have not talked to anyone about the commerce side of, and I'm sure there's so much that you have to just enlighten us on in terms of like the supply chain and production and import laws and taxes and everything. Um, But before we do that, Um, could you quickly tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got to be who you are and in the position that you're in now? Of course.
1: Okay. So starting with sort of family exposure to wine and then fast forward, I always worked in restaurants, even in college or in the summers, I would have my internship that was meant to be, you know, that this is your career building thing. And then I always loved working at restaurants and made some extra cash and had fun. And then after college, I remember I wanted to write. That's what I thought I wanted to do. And I I was like, I'm gonna live in New York City and I'm gonna write. Um, And while looking for that perfect writing job, I started to get a, a job hostessing to pay rent and that, that ended up becoming this full-time job. I had taken some like, part-time or uh, this job during the day that was like very uninspiring and my restaurant job was always so engaging. And then that led to this other restaurant job at WD50, which opened my eyes to the world of like competent New York restaurants, which was very different than the restaurant that I had been working before. And it was like, you know, great chefs and press and and all these amazing luminaries would come in every night. And I got to be part of these conversations and experience this level of curiosity and intellect that was very, very different from any restaurant job I had had previously. And that was so eye-opening and engaging. And then after that is when I decided, okay, I do want to stay in this restaurant world. Maybe I can merge that with writing I'll go to culinary school and I'll then I'll like really understand restaurants and then I can write about them. And my parents were like, that's great, but if I were you, you might want to think about your finances. You and also like just strategically, and they very much encouraged what ended up being a great decision, which was to move back to Denver, Colorado for 18 months. And during that time, which I I really I looked at my, I looked at that step. I was like, this is really a step in the wrong direction. What if I never get back to New York? But in this other way, it was so motivating because I knew that I wanted to get back to New York. And so I made the most out of these 18 months where I was able to go to culinary school. And then also I, I, my mom had great advice. She was like, if you want to write for a newspaper, you should write a writing sample and drop it off at every magazine and newspaper office and I will drive you there and I'll drive you around but like nothing's gonna happen on its own it's time for you to take action and so I did that and then the place that I dreamed of course my voice in my head was like no I I can never do that and then I ended up getting this cheap eats writing job at the Denver Post and that was you know a paid $150 a week but was where I poured all of my time and, and effort and then the culinary school resulted in a culinary degree and ended up being my path back to New York. And I was able to work in the kitchen at Danielle for Danielle Ballou when Danielle was like the four-star restaurant. It was it was such an amazing place to be. I was there mm-hmm. in the kitchen of the second half of 2005 and then in the dining room all of 2006. And it was actually Danielle who said, he noticed that anytime there was a wine event, I was so engaged and I would work for free as one does. And and I was just so happy to be able to have those experiences. I think, especially coming out of um, out of Denver, where you're so at, at least at, at that time, in Denver's food scene has come you know, so far. But at the time, there, the it was just not not worth comparing to New York's food scene. And I just felt so happy to be there. Um, mm-hmm. And then Danielle was the one who's like, "You clearly love this. You should. You can always have a job in the kitchen." But you should work harvest in in France, and here we are with a bunch of Burgundian winemakers. Why don't you line something up with one of them? And so that resulted in my first harvest, which was two thousand six at Domaine de Larlo, and then the next year, yeah. And I remember everyone said like it's going to be really hard, it's really physical, and like. That's what everyone had also said in the kitchen. Like you, you don't look like you can handle that, <laughs> and so that's always very motivating. Yeah, it's always, uh, yes. really like yeah. You have very low expectations, which I plan to exceed. Um, yeah, and thank that, you for
0: I, that, giving me that, yeah, that boost. <laughs> exactly, yeah,
1: exactly, exactly. And so that that ended up being beneficial at Harvest as well. But if, and those that, that year was the only year I actually picked for the entire time, and it was ten days of picking. I remember like by day six or seven it was really hard to sit up straight or like, like even stand up straight at night and you know that but it but it was this amazing masterclass in the history of burgundy and all of mm-hmm. not ideal. the gossip because the the part of you know some of that you get some some gossip but really it was about like the stuff you don't read in books or the stuff that i had not um come across in books and so and then just for me i'm such a, a visual learner and i think having the opportunity to stand in a vineyard and pick and, you know, think about the way the light hits you in the vineyard of Susho, and how that's so different than when you're picking in the Mm -hmm. vineyard of, uh Claude de Foray in New St. George and just the bugs were different and like everything about these vineyards was so different you remember which vineyards your feet sink into the mud versus which ones they don't and and then at dinner that was the first time I ever blind tasted so everyone would would blind taste and actually this is my husband at the time was my my boyfriend and he had a restaurant uh, that was very um that had a like I think probably the preeminent burgundy list in the country at the time called crew and when I said I was going to work harvest in burgundy he said I'm coming with you it's going to be great and in my mind I was like no this is like my thing I have to do this for myself and uh he's like I got us tickets and it ended up being this great thing because then he would go and then the, he would go and he would choose these bottles and then everyone would blind taste. And it was just this, it was like, everyone was so present in this really great way.
0: And so oh, that, that was, that's a magical time. Gosh. It was
1: so magical. It was. And then, and then after that, after, you know, I picked for 10 days, then it was like, I got the, the, like the gates open and I was like, okay, you can work harvest with me too. Like, I get that you're, you're not going to be like a, you know, a worthless stagiaire who, who like, you know, sits on the sidelines. So that opened the door for the next really decade. And that, I think it was really that exposure to seeing the way that different wines were made and having the benefit of learning the stories of the land of the wineries. That was wonderful and a wonderful counterpart to my time in restaurants. So after Danielle, I went to work at a place called Veritas and then left to work at a place called Nick and Tony's, which was my first sommelier position. And that was in East Hampton. Um, and a woman named wow. Bonnie Munchen hired me and she was like, I'll mm-hmm. give you a shot. We'll see how it goes. You can have two nights as a sommelier, but you have to be a, a server for four nights. And I was like, great, I'll do it. And then like that that first week the person who was supposed to be the full-time sommelier no called no showed on Memorial Day weekend and so I got promoted. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) got promoted and that was great Um, and that was and then after that it was through one of the guests at Eleven Madison Park and I guess that was like a time of both like great excitement and and also a little like quite a bit of fear but like fear because it was like I don't really know what's next but I feel like this is where I am supposed to be right now and I remember not like thinking that way going into the summer sommelier position like this will turn into something I don't know how I know that but I bet it will and then there was a a guy named Joe Z he was a regular guest he would come every Friday night and bring two bottles and then by the end of the summer he's like what are you doing after this And he's like I'm gonna work harvest And he's like that's not a real job why don't I call my friend who's business partners with Danny Meyer, you should work at one of those restaurants in the city. And then that led to working at 11 Madison Park during this really fun time when Mm -hmm. we had, I think we had two stars at the time, but the ambition was four stars from the New York Times. And so that was, that was the goal. And everyone on board knew that was the goal. And it was like, okay, it's not going to be easy. So everyone has to really like, be in for this are you in
0: well I was uh, this I hate to interrupt you was it stressful at that time because I I,
1: so so stressful but it was like excitingly stressful and I it was it was the I feel so lucky to have been there during that time because it was the striving moment it was like this the can we do it and I think I learned a lot in a bunch of different areas. Um, John Reagan was the wine director um, and he was an amazing wine director. We ended up um, winning the James Beard Award Outstanding Wine Service that year. The the next year, I think I joined in October and then it was the next May that we got that award. Um, But John is so focused and he's so exacting and he has like, he, he's really an operations genius. So he was always like the unofficial director of operations. Like, I think there was like, a, there was another director of operations for a time. And then that person went away and the role was never refilled because, because John was that. Um, so he was brilliant in wine, but really brilliant in service. And it was always so guest oriented. So I think, you know, anyone and everyone who worked there during that time always says like, that would not be a four-star restaurant without John Reagan.
0: Uh, but he's he's
1: very humble and he's not one to take credit in the limelight he was very difficult to work for I mean I think everyone I have said this to his face and he knows it and um, <laughs>
0: yeah he, <laughs> probably, like, he probably knows that people would say that
1: yeah 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 exactly and and he would have probably said you were a little twerp when you were working for me in those early days <laughs> and I would probably say yeah I get it. I get why you would say that but I think yeah we all we at the end of the day it was like everyone was committed to this goal and and i think the management team there just generally was very good at goal setting it was always like mm-hmm. and actually since then i have now having a business i now read business books in my free time and one of the ones i read most recently a couple of times it's called be 2.0 and it's a remake of beyond entrepreneurship by Bill, Jim Collins and Bill Lazier. Okay. And Bill has since passed away, And but he was Jim's mentor. And Jim Collins is the, the guy who's written Good to Grade and like every seminal business book. And I learned of him through a Brene Brown podcast where she was like, Jim, everything we do right in our business is because of you. Thank you. We're so excited to have you on the show. Um, and so I went down that rabbit hole a little bit and um, and one of the things that he talks a lot about is having this, he calls it a BHAG, a big, hairy, audacious goal. And it's all about, you know, you have the you have the 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 values like that, those can't change. And then you have the the sort of 10-year mission, but then you need the big, hairy, audacious goal that's going to be a one to two year thing that everyone on board needs to work towards. And here's how this role's goals break down. And here's how that role's goal. And that was something that 11 Madison did so, so, so well. So it was like, Year one was like, okay, we have to, like, no, none of the press knows who we are. So we got to figure out a way to like get them here. I know we'll host a party. And then it was like, then EMP became like the party spot, which was so smart and strategic where they're like, let's host Derby Day on the same weekend that everyone's in town for the James Beard Award. So there was a lot of strategy. And it was, but it was also really fun um, and it was very stressful during those days when Frank Bruni was the reviewer at the time. And, you know, he would come in and like everyone knew yeah. how to spot mm. Frank Bruni. Mm-hmm. So it was, yeah, but there, but there was also like that sense of joy and accomplishment when we did meet goal after goal, after goal. Um, so that was, I think I'm going on a tangent. No, EF- but that's it, but
0: it's, I think I, I, cause it's, because it has a mythic, quality to it in people's yes. mind and yeah. I've seen documentaries I've seen different things I had never had a chance yes. to go there and it just so, so that's why the, where the tangent went but but after that yes. did you start working with David Chang after that is that
1: I took I went through a phase where I was like I'm not gonna work in restaurants I, although what I did start doing I, I, a couple things I wanted to take time off and then anytime I was like I'm gonna take a time off from restaurants and like a month later, which it had, there was a, a very briefly a period where I worked at a restaurant called Crown. And I, it was the first time I ever wrote my own wine list. And it was sort of a disaster from the start. It ended with Crown being shut by the FBI. Um, and Whoa,
0: that's a, that's a different yeah, podcast.
1: And I, it is really a different podcast. It's like, I don't know that this is the podcast to go into all that. Oh, but, no, it's but
0: interesting. like, it no, it's like a whole podcast. <laughs> it,
1: yeah. Yeah. No, it, was like, it was the one place I've ever worked where it was like, Oh, this is such a values disconnect that I don't think I can. I am only staying because it's the first place I've written the wine program. And I want one year on my resume because I don't want to look like a flake for, the other places that might come after this. So I did stay one year. I remember I had to hire somebody who had no experience because she was sleeping with one of the owners. Hmm. Um, and that was interesting. And then and then she would do things it, it doesn't matter. But I did, I did, I did get um, this mandate where it was like, well, you are working overtime. And we can't have you doing that. And I was like, I'm working overtime because I am your entire wine program. And I'm also making you like a lot of money with this wine program. So do you want to have somebody else? Like I can train somebody else. And like, it's it's all your decision. You just tell me what you want. And they're like, great, you're going to hire this person. And you're not allowed to work more than 40 hours a week. And I was like, great, can I travel? And they were like, yeah, you can go anytime you want, wherever you want. And so I ended up traveling a ton that year, like I went to Bordeaux, I went to like, I've never traveled more to any wine region I've ever wanted than that year. And it was, it was great for that reason. And then after that, I was like, I need a break from restaurants. And then I ended up like the week that I had decided that I was going to take a break, um, ended up working an event in California at uh, Copan. So uh, Wells Mm -hmm. Guthrie had asked Robert, my husband and I, to work this event. And he said, oh, I I want you guys there because Dave Dave Chang's team is coming. Momofuku's coming. So I really want you guys to be there so we can make sure everything goes well. And I had no expectation that Dave would have been there. In fact, I was certain that he wouldn't have been there because it's like, you know, who knows what he's doing, but it's certainly not going to be working this dinner. And Dave was there. And I remember, I think it was like I had recently, like when I was still at Crown, like maybe a month prior, I had read cover to cover a uh, Lucky Peach, one of the um, issues of Lucky Peach. Mm-hmm. And it was so brilliantly done. And I sent him a note and I never heard back and it didn't matter. It wasn't like a note to get a reply. It was just a note to be like, I love this so much. I love this Andy Warhol article where he compares Coca-Cola... He like, where, where he explains that he likes Coca-Cola because the bum on the corner drinks it and the president of the United States drinks it. I loved your like salmon Pantone chart where you talk about like how people are dying salmon to be Pantone colors, who would have guessed? And it was like this, anyway, so I sent that. And then Dave and I were both at this thing and he was like, what are you up to these days? And I was like, I'm actually taking some time off of restaurants. I'm going to study for my master sommelier exam. Like that's coming up in the spring. Um, And he's like, cool, I would love for you to consider overseeing all of my beverage programs in the U.S. And that was not a thing that I could not give serious consideration to.
0: I imagine even just hearing that, you're like, oh, this is pretty heavy. Yeah,
1: well, this is like where it's like, like if there was one, because the conversation I remember having like in my head at this event before that conversation was like, you know. I feel like I've done the restaurant thing. I've worked at 11 Madison Park. We've saw that through to the four stars. I've worked at places like Crown. I've worked at, at you know, I've, I've sort of seen it all. There's really no place that I would, that, that feels like a place that I would be a good fit for, um, except Momofuku. And so it was really, I feel like sometimes there is some divine intervention in some way where it's like, mm-hmm. you can't plan that stuff. You can't wish for that because I, I don't know. But anyway, so that started a series of conversations, and then I joined, um, that was December of 2011, and then I joined in February of 2012. No, it was December of 2012, and I joined in February of 2013. How, How
2: expansive was the Momofuku empire at that
1: time? Yes. Okay. So uh, let's see, there was in New York City and, and initially there was a conversation about like, hey, you can take over Toronto too. And I was like, e, like <laughs> very different, very different. Yeah. Like the government controls everything. Yeah, your brain like, had to, yeah. yeah, not like that sounds fun. And like my you know, my ambition is such that I, you know, like I'm not gonna say no to that, but I cannot say yes to that because I don't know anything about <laughs> liquor regulation yeah. or distribution in Canada. Um, but it was the U.S. So at that time, that was um, the New York City restaurants, which were um, Sambar. Okay, so it was um, the original noodle bar. It was Momofuku Co. Sambar, uh, Sambar Noodle Bar Co., and then Mapesh. Wow. Mm-hmm. And, Montpesh, and then the, and then there was the, we knew we were opening um, DC and we knew we were opening Las Vegas, but the big projects. So it was a couple of things that, <clears throat> sort of like, all right, here's the timeline. Like the priority one for right now was Montpesh, which was sort of the um the restaurant that wasn't like the others you know everything else hit this hit its stride right away and pash was in midtown instead of downtown it was in a hotel it was in a basement it, it was not owned outright by momofuku so it's too many things were different about this and it, it just wasn't clicking even though the chef there um paul carmichael was amazing and anyway there were all these things that were for not, not quite going right. And so my original mandate was, hey, make a great wine program for Malpeche and then you can do whatever you want, uh, at which I spent most of my time there. But in the meantime, we made small but really fun changes at Noodle Bar. Like we got rid of regular sized bottles, for example. And the thinking there was like, Noodle Bar is always ahead of the curve. Noodle Bar always like beats, like goes to its own drum beat. And if you're at Noodle Bar, you either want like something excellent and you want it to be the best and you want it, you're in and out because it's, a you, you're busy mm-hmm. or you're there with the big group. So you want a Magnum um, or you're there on your own, like in between whatever you're doing and you want like a great bottle, but you're not sharing it with everyone. You don't need a whole bottle of wine to yourself. So we, we did like these amazing half bottles, like basically like $10 above cost just to get people talking and there and that worked and then everything else was kind of magnum so all of our by the glass wines were by magnum and then that was really fun and then uh so that was my passion and co we did an all sparkling pairing and that was one that, that that came about that conversation came about in my initial conversation with dave and i was like dave i think it would be so fun to do this and he was like i've wanted to do that for years and the <laughs> chefs never <laughs> let me do it like yeah it sounds you have so great <laughs> so you have to convince them first and so that was like the the management style at 11 oh, that's Madison really Park. interesting
0: into the mindset okay that's interesting
1: yeah well it, so it, it was like so different where it was like very much like dave was like look I'm not going to get involved. I think it's a great idea. You have to like figure out how to convince everyone else that it's a good idea. Whereas at EMP, it was very much like the order comes from the top yeah, and a- everything feeds up to the big yeah. goal. And, and, and of course it's different because Momo was many restaurants and EMP was one, but, but the, the, mm. the way to get to sort of the beginning and then to the end was just a very different approach. It's
0: empowering, right? I, I guess it, I'm trying to think so of
1: empowering. Oh so empowering and so fun because you get to think and not that you didn't get to think at 11 Madison Park but your job was sort of to be a robot like a really great like
0: well-tuned yeah like Mm well-tuned
1: robot yeah like you had to be like an Aston Martin whereas like you get to be a human being um more and I I say that with no like that's without disparagement like Mm -hmm. no nowhere did I learn more than at 11 Madison Park in terms of how to study for yeah like how to So yeah you're training yourself to be one way versus training yourself to training your brain to be a different way and there was so much freedom and creativity and that was so fun and so empowering and as a result yeah I, like it's fascinating to be
0: able to have both those to be no, part of the, both those worlds
1: Yes, I think EMP for me was really hard because you don't like, yeah, it was hard, but it was great. You're like, you're you're there because you know that it's for this goal. And I think for my life at the time, like my resume at EMP resulted in my ability to have the job at Momofuku in, in a lot of ways, I think like I think that mattered to Dave that I could operate with that kind of structure, but that also it was important that I didn't have to operate in that. And there's always a learning curve, at least for me, there always is. So, you know, at first I was like, we should do things this way. And, and like to the credit of Dave and his team, like actually I need to shout out Sue Wong Ruiz, who is the GM of Co not at the initial restaurant like we moved co and that was the big deal and dave was like we need to have sue as the gm and sue is so amazing um she she was and is she's not at co anymore she left last december but her approach to service was so thoughtful and genuine and like like John Reagan, it was always about the guest, but it wasn't with this like, you know, carrot or stick. Mm-hmm. It was like, let's talk this through and think about it. I understand your point of view that you want to do this this way, but is that because you did it that way at 11 Madison park or or what about, you know, here's my thinking behind it. And so there was just so much thought that was also, it was open-minded thought versus closed-minded thought. And again, they both work. They both work well. But I think what Sue did at Co right. that resulted <laughs> in it being so special is there was a warmth to it. I guess that's maybe the, the thing that was different yeah. was warmth. Um, and so how many Co, seats was Co? Because Co was okay. tiny, right? Co was tiny. So the original Co was 12 seats. And then the new co was 24 seats plus this wine table where we got to do a reverse wine pairing.
2: You've been talking a lot about these New York restaurants and I lived there around that time. And it's like hitting me so hard right now that this was all I Facebook existed, but Instagram did not like, it wasn't a social media era. And there was a feeling when you ate somewhere special, it felt very intimate because you weren't sharing it with the world, right? Like you weren't taking photos of your food and putting it. So when I first moved to New York and I was staging at per se, it was like my 10 day harvest trial, right? Like we need to see you suffer and stick with it. And so after week two, people really started embracing me and, talking to me more and kind of like bringing me into the fold and I felt like I was making friendships and I was and one night they invited me out because the certain shifts they everybody had the same two days off so if you were like am you had these two days off so this whole crew had the same days off and I think they hung out a lot because of their schedules and so I was invited to go to noodle bar and I didn't know anything about Noodle Bar. I was very new to New York, but I could tell they were all really excited about it. And we got there, we waited in line. I think there was a group of four of us, which was like a big group for Noodle Bar. I mean, because you know, I don't think it was very spacious. Not that yeah. I recall. It was very much like a bar with bar seating and maybe a couple of tables. I don't really remember tables. And it was this great experience and it was all these chefs from Per Se. And that's really when it, it dawned on me that like this city has these really special moments, like everywhere. All you have to do is go. And, and it wasn't special because I was with per se chefs. It wasn't special because of anything other than just this dining experience felt really unique to me coming from Houston. Um, Like I hadn't experienced anything like it. And it really caused me to think differently about what I wanted to do as a chef and what it was that we were doing as chefs, because you're really part of this big hospitality circle, right? The food is just this one aspect. The drink is just this one aspect. The service is one aspect, but how they all work together is so critical. And when you have this tiny little space with these few seats, you have so few opportunities to really nail it. And I felt like they nailed it. And then I went to Sambar. Sambar became like my late night after work dinner
1: yes like I the would.
2: bossam with all the sauces yes, yes when yes, they yes. stopped when they stopped serving the um the uh what I used to get late night was like a burrito yes like they got rid of that pretty early on yep. and that was my that was like my I want to say they closed at 2am that was my 2am yeah. after I got off of work oh. at Babo, I would go you worked at and- babo
1: too i think i have forgotten that yeah that's so that's so amazing we could have so many other offline conversations i like, or even
0: online
1: <laughs> <laughs> we could go so many directions it's because- weird it, it is weird yes.
0: doing this when i we talk to people and it seems like Erin's path has crossed like she's crossed paths with so many different people because it just yes. feels like you guys were all kind of in new york at that yeah. same time yes just, exactly people exactly. we talked to and like even billy journey yeah. was like I, like there's a whole thread yes. throughout this year. and yes. you're
2: friends with billy or you know billy right yes yes yeah. like we just got to hang out at this wedding a few weeks ago or was that in ireland
1: no it oh. was in new york actually it was oh, a okay. new york wedding <laughs> um but yeah it was like mostly basketball players and then there was like a little small group of like restaurant people yeah, and so, so we all we all got to hang out but we, <laughs> oh no he's a perfect person to be on this podcast
0: yeah no we we yes. love billy now he was just we, we could have talked to him for like we could probably talk to you for four hours we could have talked to him for four hours it was uh he, yeah. and he and he was seated i think between like the Beastie boys and Randy yeah he had some he really was,
2: good art like, behind him. really good art it
0: was just so billy it was just, he's just <laughs> he's that. amazing he's
2: he's such an easy person to be around that's why yes. i really like billy yeah. yes um wait but you were saying babo okay so you would have you were working at babo and then you would go in yeah so my late night my you know my route to get home was i would walk all the way to what is it first avenue it's been a long time yeah. since i lived in new yeah. york i would walk all the way to first avenue get the i think they just called it the Som. i can't remember um but it was the burrito yeah, it was like an asian right. burrito and then yeah. i would get in a cab and eat it on my way home and that was dinner at 2 a.m and then they stopped making it and i had friends that eventually worked there and they were the ones that told me like hey we're not gonna make it anymore and i'm like what you can't you have to make it for me at least but um yeah. And I I mean I feel like the impact that those restaurants had on the New York scene back then. And so we're talking two thousand and eight, two thousand and seven, mm. two thousand eight, two thousand nine, yep. like all in that time frame.
0: Yep. Um it changed the conversation. It's interesting how if something if something along the way didn't happen. We want to be talking, like, there's just like these, all these important things that happen along yes. the way. That's what always yes. goes wrong when I think about people's lives and how one turn around a corner, one discussion, yeah. or one waiting an hour longer at something that.
1: A hundred percent. Right. Like I almost didn't go to the California thing. I was there for something else. I was like, okay, fine. I'll do this. But yeah, you know, no, it is, it is so true. I feel like there, not that we're going this direction on this podcast, but <laughs> there, I recently um discovered one night late night looking for something on audible this deepak chopra book that i listened to on audible and he talks a lot about the role of coincidences Ah. and how it's he he compares it to like a rose like if you have a seed of a rose like a rose's job is to become a rose and the rose will never become an apple tree or a pear tree or or anything else and like what the rose needs is Like water in the right environment but the the rose is like destined to like fulfill its promise of becoming a rose and that if you look at one's life in this same context it's sort of like he considers coincidences to be be the universe's messages to make sure that you understand you're on the same path and so he encouraged this Um, He said, you know, I I keep a coincidence log and there, of course, there are some things that are very small coincidences, but there are other things that are just too powerful to be anything other than divine signs from divine, whatever that means to to Mm -hmm. each of us, but you sort of from this higher creative source of intelligence to point us the right direction into this destiny that we're, we're meant to grow and I think yeah. When I think about so many moments, right. Where like I was committed to becoming a writer and then the, the moment where I decided not to, was like, yeah, there were, there were just too many points. Mm-hmm. Like nudges, say, like, like, like little
0: subtle yeah, nudges.
1: Like but, that's not what you're supposed to do or that's not what you're supposed to do. Or that's your mom like, taking to,
0: you to all those places in Denver. Yes, that's
1: yes, pivotal. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And exactly. all these
0: mentors along the way that people don't, you know, you might not realize at the time that they are, stewards for your life and hey, yes. what's the deep wait what is that i hate what's the book because i can put oh, a, link, a link it's to called
1: it uh, yes i'll send them separately but i'll give you two one the first one was the seven spiritual laws of success and then i liked it so much that i was like who's the i guess this deepak guy is onto something and then i landed on <laughs> <laughs> the spontaneous fulfillment of desire which okay. is where he really goes deep into cool. the role of coincidences
0: wow thank you very much That's, yeah uh, yeah cool. I'll put a link below for people. So that way. They're-
1: I, they're, I I love them. I've listened to them both now, multiple times, like in the last month, it's like, you know, sometimes your brain or your body or your soul needs something that's different from another
0: mm-hmm. time in life. Um, yeah. There's always yeah. A, like a time and a place a lot of times. Yes, people.
1: exactly. Exactly. Sense. Exactly. So, how, so
0: I, I'm assuming people, everybody's like, so how did Ramona?
1: Yes. Okay. So early on, I want to say like within my first few months, I remember, like I've never enjoyed beer. I just don't, for me, it's not delicious. So I never crave beer. I associated it in my life exclusively with like college parties. And I always wished that there was something that was more enjoyable. And then that carried through into my adult life. And, and there were just so many moments where it was sort of a beer moment. And I just wished that there was an alternative to that. And then the more I went through wine and my career in wine and noticed these sort of patterns or these through lines of value systems whether it's a great winery in Patagonia or Italy or Burgundy there's sort of this commitment to quality or to not adding stuff or you know whatever it is and I just felt like I I think the other thing that was really important and it's weird that I've already referenced it in this conversation but was the Lucky Peach article where Andy Warhol talks about Coca-Cola. I want to look that up
0: so badly after we... Yeah,
1: it's like, I forget the exact quote, but effectively he says, you know, Coca-Cola is the best and the bum on the corner knows it's the best and the president of the United States knows that it's the best and that's why I drink Coca-Cola. And there was this sort of democratization of quality, which has always been really interesting to me. Like my parents now are really interested in wine and different kinds of wine because they would come and visit me when i was working harvest at burgundy and so now they have that reference point but we did not grow up with yeah it was just this sort of this notion that quality should not be reserved for people who can afford to collect you know tens of thousands of dollars worth of wine. Um, And and so that sort of was in my head. And then I remember having a conversation with a friend early on at Momo and we're like, remember like, okay, I'm gonna reference wine coolers but I wanna like make it very clear that I do not endorse wine coolers. I do not think they're delicious. I'm not promoting them in any way. But this idea of a wine cooler, at least like catering on a taste level is like being better than beer or like crappy beer, like the crappy wine cooler in the 80s, 90s, like was at least a different flavor profile. And I was like, what? My thought was always like, why has nobody done that better? Like, why is there not a fine wine value system, but for casual moments, for any time, anywhere? And that was where the idea came from. And then, of course, I discovered spritzes I think it was like harvest, working harvest in Montalcino one year and I would have an Aperol Spritz every afternoon. And I just thought, this is so lovely. It was a sort of moment of joy. And now now Aperol's everywhere. Um, but Aperol was so, it was like a little bit exotic at the time. And I was like, <laughs> oh, I get it. Like a wine cooler is actually like a bad American knockoff of <laughs> <That's-> <laughs> a Spritz. And so what if like we just take the value system and we did it better? We used like, organic grapes and real fruit. And we didn't have weird chemicals. And I wouldn't that be fun. Like, why has nobody done that? And then that idea never left. But I was just always too busy to focus on it because it was like, okay, well, now we're opening another restaurant or DC is opening or um, the MS exam. So I took the MS three times. Um, The first was 2013, May, and I ended up passing blind tasting. And so I then was like, part of this group of people like right in between the old system and the new one the old system was you have three years to pass the three parts in whatever order you choose and the new system is you have to pass theory first and then you can be led uh. forth to take the other two and so I was the last year of the old system and then because I passed blind tasting on that first try I was in this like little subgroup of people who had two more years before before resetting So I, the second year I passed nothing and I deserved to pass nothing. I did not study hard enough. The third year I studied like I've never studied for anything in my life. And I was, we also had just moved co so I was on the floor every night. I remember Bobby Stuckey who oversees service for the court came in with, um, and he was, he's amazing. And he said, you know, what you're doing right now at co with this tasting menu is like this is what I'm going to tell everyone they need to like have on their radar and visit. Like we were doing some things that I, I, I want to get to a, a tangent because I just think it's fun to no, talk about. But one of the things that came out of the original sparkling pairing was this, um, was a, a pairing in which we rinsed the glass with Van Jones. So there was a, a pairing that I know was like wow. a test from the chefs because their goal was to like trip me up so that I, I, they could be like, ha, you don't know what you're doing. And my goal was to show them that I could like pass their test of whatever their test was, and so this one day mid-service they switch up the dish. They're like, "We're not doing the whatever anymore. Now we're doing a new soup, and it's shishito pepper broth with orange gelée and brioche." So it was like a super pirazini broth with like bits of pepper floating and it was like and I was like okay I got this we'll do sparkling Sauvignon Blanc and I remember trying the Sauvignon Blanc that we had on hand and it was a terrible match it made the wine taste like pickle brine and then I tried a few other things and like everything was like still so flat and so we we got through the night with like a sparkling Portuguese wine and then we like bought the rest of that sparkling Portuguese wine for the rest of the week and then like the distributor was out and we were back to square one and so I read this book called Taste Buds and Molecules as like a last resort and it was this guy who was the, briefly the sommelier for for Audrey's restaurants and wow. his whole thing was like hey everything is science we'll just break it all down like, um this wine has these flavor molecules so like these wines also have those so this will be a good pairing and it was so clinical and like i would say charmless it was not how i think about pairings there was no there was no um sort of consideration of texture or um mm. context but it but it was really interesting from a molecule perspective and this one page on oloroso sherry was crazy and it was like oloroso sherry had like 100 different molecules that would pair well with other things like caramel but also you know green beans and whatever and so I remember thinking I wonder if there's a way where we can use this and Oloroso sherry is too high in alcohol it's fortified but we had Benjone and so I ended up rinsing the glass with Benjone and then pouring in a sparkling de Jura from the same producer and it worked and it worked so well that it made the wine, it made the pairing better and it made the mm-hmm. soup better and that was like a seminal moment in my relationship with the kitchen team where they're like okay like you've passed our test we'll, like we will let you have time at line up now like yes like we'll give you the time of day fine on to the next and so that was, but that, that pairing then ended up being part of our pairing menu when we moved co and we were doing other things as well, but it's also just like a good trick to have up your sleeve. Like it pretty much works with anything. If you ever have something where you're like, this doesn't pair with anything, it will probably pair with a uh, Vangon Rinse. And then, so back to the MS exam, that's so why I, I, I'm like very practiced in service and I study at my table feathers off for theory and i end up like passing theory with flying colors and then it's service time and i don't run out of time and i answer every question correctly and i'm like oh my god i think i think i passed because i don't know what i would have flubbed on and then it came time for feedback and it turned out that i had not passed because a group of Somalias at one of the tables decided i didn't seem like myself to them And meanwhile, none of them had ever seen me work in a restaurant. I don't know any of them. And it was just like a gut punch because because there's no amount of studying or practice Mm. that can make you seem more like yourself to a group of people who don't know you. And the gift of that, like, frankly, absurd feedback was that it was like, too absurd to actually take seriously like by the time I got over it yeah first it was this gut punch and then and then actually a week later I found out I was pregnant and back to this coincidence it was like I happened to be in Italy for something I was there for a wedding but then I like tagged on another couple of days for this other project and it was there at that in italy where i had like all these epiphanies and it was like okay i do have to do this and this this thing should exist and now my mind is not preoccupied with this ms exam now it's actually focused on this thing that i think yeah like now is the time to actually yeah,
0: it was a gift but a weird like and it it's, is strange like how would someone be able to judge yes. who you are as a person it's, yeah
1: well and and that was like right before, I mean, it was probably a few years before like this, you know, now they're PR, they're sort of in a PR scandal with, you know, sexual assault stuff and cheating stuff. And they have yes. a lot of things that they are working through. So it was another, yeah, I guess a gift in yeah. that way too. Or, um, and again, in some ways it's a really great organization in that it can provide structure and education, but then it, it nothing is perfect. And, and that that group has some things to work out, so. So had
2: you, yeah, had you passed, how many women at that time were master sommeliers?
1: Yes. Okay. So I think it was like 39 at the time. And it was actually a woman who gave me the feedback that I didn't seem like myself to her. And I think about that now, and that's been actually a really great thing because I think as yeah just as as a person in this world who ha- who is a woman it's like we have to be so aware and like i as now the owner of a company i need to be so thoughtful about every decision like it's so easy to not, I, and I think I, I, I now I don't, I, I feel sort of bad for that person because her I- entire identity is tied up with this exam. Mm-hmm. And like, that is her identity. And I think that's why it would have been really disappointing for her if I had passed because then she would be one of 40 women master sommeliers instead of 39. And like, the, it's sort of like the pie isn't big enough. Whereas that's like, as a result, I don't think about the world in that way. And I think yeah. it's a good reminder that yeah, like our decisions have ramifications, and we have the opportunity to lift people up or not. And so I try to try to try to be a supportive mm-hmm. human in this in this industry. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I get why she would have made the decision she did. Um, but I uh, get it, it, but it
0: doesn't. But it's right.
1: disappointing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's like, oh, that's not who I want to be. Like, mm-hmm. that's not who I want to show up as in the world. But right. it's good also,
0: too, like, to kind of have be able to feel grounded in that belief. Like Yes, who I am. exactly.
1: Exactly. And I think that was yeah. the gift of that entire experience was like, oh, I thought that I wanted this, but why did I want it? I wanted it because I knew I, I felt like I had outgrown or I had done what I had hoped to do at Momofuku with our beverage programs. And it was time for a new adventure. And <clears throat> in my mind, the way to that new adventure was through the court of Master Sommeliers. But in reality... It it wasn't, which is like another good reminder that sometimes you don't know, mm-hmm. like they, yeah, the universe has a different plan for you that's yeah. much better than you could have imagined.
2: I don't know if you picked up on this, Kevin, but Jura has been a theme in now three podcasts. So yes. <laughs> we talked a lot about um, Jura with Billy and then Jeff Porter, and it I came love up. Jeff I yes, and so and great. now you're talking about it as this. Kind of pivotal thing for you with that um, tasting menu that you had to put together. I feel like the universe is really, really sending <laughs> us a lot of signals
0: that we need to go. That we,
2: we need to go
0: <laughs> to, to the giraffe. That needs to be yes. episode fifteen, and <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you should it.
1: have it with. You should totally interview Guillaume Donderville and
2: talk about David Pelican. Down, Kevin.
0: It's interesting how yeah that, that there's all these things that are folding into this podcast yeah. journey too, very
2: but. very independently each interview <laughs> it has been woven into like the thread of the interview in a very nonchalant way not as like the sole focus but it's there and it's present and I keep registering that and going hmm somebody's telling me something yeah. so fun. that is yeah. interesting but how
0: do you start a beverage company is that that's not an
1: oh easy feat, right? Yeah, no. And I was very terrified when I learned I was pregnant because that was like not a thing that you do in my mind. It was like, you in my mind, I think like I I had really internalized these messages of like, okay, you get to pick one. You can either have your career, which was always, which had been my identity at that point or up until that point, or you can be a mom and like, you don't get to do both. And so I was And I think that was like another thing that was, so I I was really focused, especially on maternity leave on like trying to figure out as much as possible. And my goal was like, okay, great. You have three months off from from like work 24 seven to like, to like figure this out. And a lot of things came into place, but it was, you know, so much of it is just taking the action, like calling. I remember just having calls with so many people with mobile canning lines. And like, there was at one time there was like one in the United States and we were, Pretty early to this can scene and it was not we weren't like we need to do wine in a can it was like no we want something that actually tastes good that's for anyone anytime anywhere and then the place the winery that the winery partner we found that was willing to give this project a try was like we can't do bottles but but you can probably figure out a mobile canning line maybe go that route and so it was really a function of I, I was like, they didn't have the bottle that I liked. They had some other bottle and I didn't like it as much. And so I was like, okay, bottles versus cans. The environment was important to me since the beginning. And so when I was just doing an analysis of the carbon footprint required to ship a can versus a bottle, I felt like, okay, we can, we can go for a can here. Um, but it was like, yeah, I think a lot of it was, it was like recipe testing and then it was, getting in touch with it so it was like not not linear but it was like all of these things on this giant list need to happen in whatever order some of it was like ttb registration and then you need to translate like a, a recipe of like grapefruit juice in the can like grapefruit juice and wine into like this and actually one thing that's different about the U.S. versus Italy we we moved production to Italy after our test batch. so for the test batch it was very different than you're you're figuring wow. out the can source the canning line the winery partner And then you need a formula and you have to register that through the TTB. And in the U S like the person we found to help us with this was wonderful, but he was like, look, the way flavors work, like you can't use real grapefruit. Like that just doesn't exist here. You have to find grapefruit flavor, but don't worry. There are lots of great grapefruit flavors. And so we find one and it's like, it's really important that it's natural and it's organic and these things. And then like we got so far down the line and like, like, and then the, the TTB would wait like 60 days to like reply to an email and just all that nonsense. But finally we get the recipe and then like 60 days after that, they're like, you need to put FD&C 40 on this label. And I was like, we would never use that. And it's like, it's in your natural flavor. So there was, I share this because there were so many things about the US production where it was like, secretly we've added toxic coal tar based (laughs) artificial color to your natural flavor don't worry about it
0: yeah yeah, look Um, away
1: (laughs) (laughs) and so that was part of it and then we figured out that mess and then it, it came time to canning day And on canning day, that was when I learned about Velcarin because I was told that I had to use it. And at this point I had poured my savings into this test batch and Velcarin, I was like, I don't, they're like, you can use Velcarin or potassium sorbate. And I knew potassium sorbate was a carcinogen on the no fly list at Whole Foods. And I said, I don't want to use that. And they're like, great, you can use Velcarin. It breaks down to inert.
0: So just so people know that Ronan's with us.
1: <laughs> Ronan,
0: with us. There's a surprise the that there's now a Ramona Child <laughs> <laughs> So so what was what was the um the ingredient that they wanted to include?
1: Oh, they wanted to include Velcorin. Um and that and I was told it was uh it broke down into inert gases and it wasn't a big deal. And they said you, you we're not canning this unless all right, so Velcorin, uh Velcarin, I was told broke down to inert gases and uh, wasn't an issue and that I either had to use Velcorin or potassium sorbate and and so in the end, I um, went with Velcorin and then started looking it up. In fact, like once I gave the green light for that, and it was after a lot of conversation, but there wasn't much information on it. um, Somebody came out with a hazmat suit and I was like, who's that guy? He's just administering the velcro oh. um,
0: yeah
1: so <laughs> it gets administ- yeah gets administered with a hazmat suit and then like most of like if you google it you'll find very little information you really have to do some digging because most of it is like propaganda by the people who are selling it and um, the why, does, why does during- it have to
0: be included is it because is it yeah. keep it shelf it's stable speed, or something i yeah,
1: I, yeah so it, it be all right so it breaks down to um, methanol and CO2. So sure, CO2 is not an issue. Why was less Methanol is poison. It's poison even in tiny doses, it can create blindness. So it's a really big deal. And then, yeah, it, it hydrates. So since then I've made friends with a biochemist who has helped me understand it more. Uh, it, formal- it hydrolyzes into formaldehyde. And so, um, and yeah, so, so this was concerning to me. And um, after looking around quite a bit in the U.S. uh, I was not able to find a facility that will can without using Velcroin. I think it's also being pushed. It's so crazy and it's being, I think, subsidized. Part of the other thing is that you don't have to say it. So nobody has to put it on, but I will say that we moved production to Italy because we are able to pasteurize cans in warm water, uh, which is obviously not a new technology and it's not an expensive technology um but it's clearly not being subsidized by the chemical lobby and that's so, very uh,
0: very fascinating just uh, that yeah. alone with all those challenges though were you when you decided to switch like was there were there times that you were in doubt that this would work
1: totally especially with the italy thing and i think that was like another one of those it was like okay but it was it was like you get so many red stoplights. this is yeah it's like there's so many stop signs or so many no's and then all of a sudden, like. Yeses, where you wouldn't expect them, and I think that was when we finally moved production to Italy. It it was something that was almost like a last resort out of necessity. But then it was like, oh, this is the only way we can actually make the product that we want to make and that we want to drink. Um, and so that was uh, that, in a weird way, made a lot of things easier. Like we still make everything in Italy because I don't want to use Velcro in um like full stop and we'll we'll get emails from people who reach out and they're like oh we have a new facility like you should work with us i'm like great we don't use velcro and they're like why not it's so great and then uh you know it's like i'm i'm not looking to be sold on velcro no
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah but there are odds <laughs> so, i'm sure you're reached it that people reach out to aaron all the time even me like yes, for things like it's just yes it's a constant exactly just, yeah
1: totally totally totally
0: people ask about people- podcasts and you yeah, all that
2: <laughs> I'm <laughs> glad you said yes to this one. People ask me all the time, and I don't, I don't think they mean this question negatively, but they say, what what makes Ramona different than other canned wine? And I always say, well, it's the quality of what's in the can. I've, I'm not saying canned wine is in general a bad product, but I've not come across cross a canned wine where I feel like the quality is at the level of Ramona. Every ingredient is thought through. There's nothing in this can that hasn't been approved by somebody with really high standards. And it translates. I feel like people they don't realize how much they they care about it until you present it like that. And they're like, oh wow. And then they taste it and they're like, oh it is good. And I'm like, it is good. And it's <laughs> like it's good. It's actually good for you. Like there's I it's underappreciated until you're an awareness for it. And then all of a sudden you're looking on cans for information that's not even going to be on there. I was just wondering They're if you're
0: finding a lot of people pairing this. This this, this seems like it's ideal for barbecue.
2: It is. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that's, I don't Full know stop. if Jordan is encountering that, uh, but it's great for barbecue because at least in um, the US, barbecue has a very, big connection with beer and I don't think it's beer itself I think it's the can that you crack open I think it's like a cold refreshing beverage those are the real links and Ramona satisfies all of that but it satisfies my need to have like a really good quality product on the menu and have it be wine since my focus is really pairing wine and barbecue so Ramona makes it easy for me to do that and then we do the little bucket so we do it it, it reads as a beer on our menu in the sense that like we can sell it as a bucket with four cans together, kind of like you can get a bucket of beer um, and people can enjoy oh, it casually great. and easily, right? Just like you could a can of beer, but it's wine and it's good quality. It suits our purposes very well. I'm so
1: honored that it is on the menu and that it has been on the menu. So I want to thank you so much for <laughs> just know for, for like, being this amazing communicator of Ramona and for uh, sharing it with people and for introducing it to new people.
0: And Aaron has spoken about it since day one of this podcast. Oh, and and I ended up ordering it online and it's, it ships so easily. And, oh, good. and I love the marketing I wish- and I love the packaging and I love the accessibility. It just, it's, it makes, it makes you feel good about being yeah. part of a product too. Like it's a, it's th- feels very well thought out, but also feels like you're part of, you You're in the know, which is like it's a weird. I don't know if that makes any sense, but it just feels like you're part of something that's that's better than what is out there. So that's
1: it's the ultimate compliment that is the ultimate compliment. Well, and when we launched, there weren't a ton of things in cans, so that wasn't the point. It wasn't like, we'll be in a can because that's trending. It was like, no, yeah, we'll be in a can because it's portable and because it's recyclable and because, it's single serve, and that is like the yeah. The purpose is that it should be easy, whether you're at home or on the go or outside drinking barbecue or inside drinking barbecue. Mm.
0: And it seems like it's hot everywhere almost all the time now, so it's perfect for, like, it's for, so of, <laughs> <laughs> for. Speaking
2: <laughs> of recycling and carbon footprint,
0: it's perfect for wet for the weather, and also to like it, it works in the cold, but. If on a hot day, a cold beverage like this is so delicious. Did you think of, were you going to have only four flavors at first or two or how did you?
1: No, it was one of those things where it was like, okay, initially I thought we would do peach and make it locally. And that was where I realized it's like very difficult to make anything organic in the U.S. with U.S. products um and just a it's difficult to find but then b it's very expensive if you do and so that was where we started looking outside at italy and then just doing some taste tests we looked at a base wine and basically landed on zabibo as the the sort of base grape from sicily and then it was really a matter of like what tasted the best it was like okay what can we like what's the best like we have to start with one what's the most delicious and and, like, we wanted to, I wanted to channel at that point as sort of this idea of a spritz where it's a little bit bitter, but a little bit sweet, but it's balanced and it's refreshing. And that was how we landed on grapefruit. And then, and then it was really like, I guess this is like what, what also feels like in retrospect, because I never realized that Italy was so critical. And then every step we take, it's like, oh, Italy is foundational to who we are, and oh, I happen to be Italian, and so does my grandfather, who I never met. So it's like, it's funny in reverse, Mm -hmm. where it's like, I could not have planned it, but then it was like, everything just sort of like, keeps going this direction. So. Um, in basically the quality of of citrus that we're able to source in Sicily is really high. So the lemons for our lemon and then the blood oranges for our blood orange um, and the rosé that we make is not from Sicily, that's from Abruzzo, but everything else is very Sicily based. And um, yeah, it was sort of like that was just where the quality was happening and that was where I happened to have some relationships. So it was also... It was like both the best case scenario and also the easiest thing with the fewest barriers Mm -hmm. um, because of pre-existing relationships. And that was how we ended up really leaning into Sicily and even just to Italy. And then with Amarino, I really, I guess Amarino exists because as somebody who loved Aperol spritzes, yes, there it is. Kevin has Amarino. (laughs) Um, I learned... (laughs) I learned recently, I mean, I guess a few years ago, it was like maybe three or four years ago that um, when Campari bought Aperol, they changed the recipe. So it used uh-huh. to be this like old recipe from 1919. And then when Campari bought it, uh, they changed the recipe and now it's colored with FD and C40 and red and yellow number five. And these are uh-huh. um, artificial colors that are coal tar d- derivatives, which are part of a group um, of class one carcinogens, and they were never meant to be um, included. In fact, there was a period of time where they were supposed to be banned under the FDA, but then it was like the person in charge of the FDA. It was like a swap of who was in charge, and so like the, the banning <laughs> never happened. Yeah, just one of these other things where it's like okay, <laughs> like the, if you look on a bottle of yeah, anyway, it was a long story short. It was like the idea of a spritz, this sort of that, that slightly bitter or that like. Yeah, that like bitter citrusy botanical spritz is very classic, dates back uh, coincidentally to the early 20th century to an art movement known as the Italian Futurist Movement that then spawned a cocktail movement called the Italian Futurist Cocktail Movement. And that, yeah, it's fun to go down this rabbit hole if you like and need something to, to go down the rabbit hole on one day. So the art movement spawns the cocktail movement and this group of Um, mixologists, like the group of artists, they want their identity to be tied to the future instead of the past. And so their whole focus is on creating new things that nobody's ever seen before. So um, more like this, almost like a referendum on culture previously. So they would do things like put um, stuff anchovies into communion wafers and make that a garnish of a cocktail, which they renamed Poli it was this whole thing. Anyway, Aperol comes out of that, Campari comes out of that, Select, and a lot of these spirits that we think of as aperitivos. Wow. Um, and so this notion of this sort of bitter, but bright, but the, yeah, this sort of this very Italian spritz, who doesn't love that? And who doesn't love that messaging The sort of out of the old comes the new. And so mm-hmm. um, that was something we wanted to celebrate, but we wanted to do it with a different recipe and making sure that we were using oh, that's organic so products and wine base and um, no cane sugar and then yeah, our coloring is this organic it's from organic carrots and pumpkins and so they're sort of like okay how do we take this idea that we love but make sure that it fits our value system
0: wow that's a, that's astounding so everything kind of happened organically so yeah no yeah, well, exactly. it like, unintended
1: <laughs> it's sort of like hey what is the thing I want to exist but I mm-hmm. like but it doesn't yeah like okay. why can't there be a spritz that's also organic actually since then so since last year through our Italian winery partner we're now certified sustainable through a company called Equalitas. oh great and the this is certified Uh, the sustainability certification is called 3e so it's um, environmental as well as ethical and economic so everyone in the supply chain is treated fairly and paid a fair wage the winery has solar panels that power 90 percent of everything in the winery there's a water filtration system so yeah it was like one of these things where like there's just this values alignment which i feel really fortunate to have
0: wow that's that's amazing and 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 I and even we've been talking for an hour and a half, and I I I could we could talk for a long like, time, long time, but I don't I don't know how like you know the people people are. But if I um, want to make sure, Ronan was
2: that, was asking for some snuggles. Is there anything was, specific yeah. that you
0: want to make sure that we cover? Because oh I know that goodness. people can find people can find you in Whole Foods, which Whole people Foods are now mm-hmm. Whole Foods. somebody owns Whole Foods, so I'm, I'm assuming it's across everywhere, right? Whole Foods, are everywhere.
1: yeah, everywhere yeah. except for the Dakotas. Pennsylvania and Utah, and I think West Virginia. Like for whatever okay. reason, those states are they they do okay. their own thing. In- when it comes to liquor, but yes. Um, And then online at drinkramona.com. And I feel like we should do like a special code, like Ramona15 could be for 15% off. And I know that that's like a code that we have in our system already. So that can be like a
0: special code. I'll put put that in the intro as well. So that way people know and I'll put it in anything that I write up about it. We'll we'll make sure we include that. And is there there anything that, I guess, online... Like most, can they get it at most uh, liquor stores or most, or is it mostly? Yes.
1: I mean, I would say, don't. Whole Foods, yes. Whole Foods near you, many independent, fine wine, independent retailers, right. um, online, of course. Carrots and if you don't see not, it, ask for it. Mm. Ask for it, please. That would make me so happy. That would be, and then they'll carry it and that's, mm-hmm. that would be the dream.
0: And yeah, merch. And also too, I think what the spritz, uh, what's it called? The um spritz club
1: society society yes the spritz yes.
0: society yes it's like it's a club three it different levels club, right?
1: yes three different levels and you can that way it's basically like you don't have to think about it ramona just will ship to your door four times a year which is um ideal and then there are like different discounted tiers that are built into that as well
0: excellent well thank you yeah. so much for well, taking the time it. this has yes. been fantastic it's uh, it's so eye opening to on so many different levels it's these always go down yeah. a different path than we imagine but it's uh, this has been so great
2: yes well, thank Likewise. you so much
1: thank you both so much and thank you again for making today work and Um, for making it work with all three of our time zones Um, it's really wonderful to Kevin to meet you and Aaron to see you and thank you so much for having me on the
0: show that was fantastic is there so what's so what do we have coming up for Fiji's in the next month
2: we have well we're really busy this month doing some more wine dinners we've got some private wine dinners um booked and we're doing our cooking class. Our second cooking class is going to be September 25th. That is unfortunately already sold out. Well, mm-hmm. fortunate for us, unfortunate for anyone who might be interested. Yeah. And then we're really, this is the season where things get crazy. And yeah. so my whole August and the first part of September has been dedicated to Thanksgiving. Like we're already, we're already tracking for um october and november in terms of holidays and events and things that's that interesting for people up. that
0: to know about how, how a restaurant works because that's how you guys have to think that far in advance who would think that august september you would already yeah. be into thanksgiving yeah
2: and i don't know how much this has to do with the pandemic and just things getting tighter and things getting harder but um turkeys have to be ordered, like we had to order our turkeys already to guarantee that we would have turkeys for Thanksgiving. We're starting nationwide shipping this year. So we're going to be shipping Thanksgiving packages through Goldbelly. So, you know, we went from doing 40 turkeys to doing 300 turkeys. And so there's a logistical component to that. We've had to rent a reefer truck. We've had to have an electrician come out and install an electrical outlet to accommodate um, said truck. Uh, just kind of trying to figure out how we're going to store all the shipping materials because those don't break down. I mean, it's an insulated box. So the size that it is when you receive it is the size that it is when we receive it. So um, (laughs) there's a massive space issue. So that's, that's really what we have going on right now. We're also getting into the beginning of events season. So we've Mm -hmm. got some really great events coming up um, in September, October and November um, that we're really looking events outside to.
0: of fiji outside
2: to. of the restaurant yeah so um, one of the ones that we look forward to every year um, but it's been uh, it's been on recess for the last two years because of the pandemic is southern smoke so that's coming up october 23rd um, so not this month but we're already in full swing thinking about it um, and the tickets are on sale it's one of the most fun events for us to be part of, but it's also something that we are really passionate about raising money for. So um it's just a really great thing that exists for our hospitality industry.
0: Is that in Charleston?
2: No. So we we do have an event in Charleston. We're doing Holy Smoke in Charleston. Okay, that's Holy Smoke um, in
0: Charleston. Okay, that's what I'm saying.
2: Holy Smoke is in Charleston. So Southern Smoke is... um It was... Founded by Chris Shepard, who's local Houston. So the event's always been um, in Houston. The the main fundraiser, so the Southern Smoke Festival, has always been in Houston. Um, They've since branched out. I know they donated a bunch of money to Chicago, and there's been some kind of satellite events in other cities to help raise money for hospitality industries throughout the country. Um, So not just here in Houston. Is that the
0: one that I remember seeing photos maybe many years ago of a stage with a check a bit like it was a big, yes. okay, okay. That's yeah, that looks like a, a fun, fun festival. It's Every-
2: grown so much and evolved. It started out as an MS fundraiser for, tie it into wine um, for Antonio Giannola, who is a big and very important um, person in Houston in the wine community. Um, and he was a dear friend of Chris Shepard's. And so when he was diagnosed with MS, I think this was Chris's kind of response to that news was just like, I have to do something, I can't do nothing. And I think in that first year, I'm making this up, I'm sure, but I wanna say we raised uh, with that, it seemed big at the time, but in retrospect to the festivals that they put on since it's small, that small festival raised, I think $273,000 for MS, which was huge. Well, I mean, now, that's a real, a small fraction of how much is raised each year through the festival, um, and it's grown. So Pat Martin, Billy Durney, Rodney Scott, um, these are all names that have been part of the festival for years, um, and will be part of the festival again this year, but now it's even bigger, you know, Brooke Williamson, Tom Colicchio, Gail Simmons, um, Claudette Zapata like, this list is huge. I yeah, want to say there's like 40 or 50 chefs involved this year. So it's this massive list of local talent. And then just a lot of people from outside, um, from all over the country and, um, Ashley Christensen's part of it. So, and there there's events every day, the big final, uh, the big final event that kind of the whole weekend is culminating to is on Sunday, the 23rd, but there are also events on Friday and Saturday involving some of the other chefs. And so I highly recommend people go to southernsmoke.org and learn about the festival, learn about what the fundraising is for. Wow. And if you are so inclined to get, purchase a ticket because they sell out very
0: quickly. I'll put a link below, but that's, it's going, to, it's, we're getting closer to October 23rd. So it's a,
2: yeah, it's not that far away. It it's not that far away, it is, no. It's, it's tomorrow, fun.
0: essentially. Yeah, that's, wow, that's that's so great. I didn't know as much now. Thank you for enlightening us and me about that because I, I knew about it, but I didn't know it to that extent. And then, mm-hmm. so the, and then there's the Texas Monthly Barbecue Festival. You, you guys are at that, right?
2: Yes. So Texas, this will be our first time doing it um, because of scheduling reasons, but also this is the first time we are on their top 50 list because we weren't open for the previous list. And it's in Lockhart. It's the first weekend in November, so I want to say it's the 5th and the 6th, yes. Um, So I'm really excited. I think moving it to Lockhart from Austin was a really good move. We'll see how it all plays out logistically, Mm -hmm. but that's kind of the beating heart of Texas barbecue, and Mm -hmm. we've forgotten. It's almost as if Texas barbecue can at times kind of forget its heart and soul, and so Mm -hmm. this festival, I think, is a really good reminder that... Barbecue continues to evolve, and it continues to grow, and it continues to change, and all of that is great, and we can celebrate all of that. But we still have to remember where we came from and why we're here, mm-hmm. and that is what you find in Lockhart.
0: Yeah, definitely. It's it's always a place that anybody who says they're going to Texas, I always tell them to visit because it's incredibly important, and it's yeah. it's a chance to step back in time, essentially. It really. There's a I mean, when you drive
2: through it, it feels as yeah. if you have stepped back in like a
0: little I movie guess. like a movie set or it doesn't like a little de- de- like Mayberry it, d- it definitely feels that way and there's of course it Lockhart itself has grown I did a screenshot you guys have Wednesday is steak night and kids mm-hmm. eat free night? kids
2: eat free yep okay.
0: Thursday is Tex-Mex Thursday right
2: Tex-Mex Thursday so it it kind of revolves it's not always the same dish mm-hmm. um this week we're doing enchiladas. We're trying to establish like our core four or five dishes. And then those will be what we rotate through so that people can develop a familiarity with what the specials are going to be. And then on Tuesdays, we do $30 whole racks of ribs from five to nine, um, which is a really great deal. And we don't have any specials on Friday and Saturday because we're pretty busy, but we also offer burn So we took burn-ins off of our regular menu, but we do offer burn-ins on Saturday and Sunday. Okay. So that's important because a lot of people come yeah. in wondering when they can get burn ends Saturday and Sunday at spring branch.
0: And as I had uh, indicated last episode, you guys do whole hog every day.
2: We do whole hog every day. Yes. Yeah. Which is, yep. that's a thing. It's a thing. And um, <laughs>
0: it's like, it's very it's much. Been, a thing.
2: It's definitely been part of Patrick's like whole persona. He really started out. We developed relationships with Rodney Scott many, many years ago, um, partly because of Southern Smoke, we got to help them out. But it's been this obsession and fascination of Patrick's because we're in the beef capital where brisket is king. And it was kind of like, how do you do something not only that just dis- differentiates you, but also when beef is so expensive, what else can you do that's going to really wow people? And that's when we started looking to whole hog. And it's still, you know, it's an evolving customer base. We're still in beat the beef capital. Yeah. So we we have to work hard to get people to like want to embrace um, whole hog, but I think we're definitely getting there.
0: For um, Thanksgiving, are you going to, in October, are they going to, is controlled by Gold Belly? Is that when they, they'll put it online, that Thanksgiving packages? So the,
2: the nationwide shipping stuff is going to be controlled um, by Gold Belly. Yes. And I'm not sure what their timing is exactly, but I would expect that sometime after Halloween is when they'll kind of target the, mm-hmm. PR and announcements and stuff. I don't know that all for sure, but we do also do, we've always done local, local Thanksgiving options. Um, So we'll have packages and offerings for local pickup and we do hot turkeys and hot spiral cut rum glazed hams on Thanksgiving day so we're we're not open to the public as a restaurant but we are open for pickups because we serve um turkey and ham straight off of the smoker
0: gotcha and so will that and those, those do
2: sell out yeah so those do sell out so it's not something you could just walk up and order the morning of like you definitely have to order it ahead of time but um we are doing that this year do you
0: like what roughly what time of year do you guys usually put those on sale do you remember for last year was it like um, like the, November after, one,
2: yeah, okay. it's like Halloween is over. We cross that off on the calendar okay, so, okay. and then That's the next day is just like, all right, launch Thanksgiving. Uh, okay. give people as much we like to give people as much time as possible. So we open up the order site on uh, at the very beginning of November, and then we kind of amp up the marketing push because we want to give people a little holiday breather. Like we'll give you a couple days before we really put Thanksgiving, you know in your face. But then we really quickly ramp up all the marketing and and,
0: we, and once, I mean and Thanksgiving's this...
2: our biggest holiday. We November is my craziest, busiest, most satisfying month of the year.
0: Okay, so I should text you a lot and ask you a lot of questions during that month yes. that's the, yeah. that's when you'll be the most accessible, right?
2: I will yeah, I will be very responsive <laughs> and you will hear from me immediately.
0: <laughs> that's great. No that's but it's it also it's it's interesting. For people to get some insight and then also too, maybe for 20 years from now if you look back on this you can see like a time capsule of how you were thinking and like what was <laughs> what were the stresses then and what are the stresses 20 years from now but that's this yeah. has been such a cool episode and i'm glad we got to cover some Fiji stuff but jordan was a pretty special she guest. was great yeah i
2: agree and definitely
0: I, and it's so insightful and it's interesting to see someone that has like such a big brand and had have done so much career wise but also she's such a you know a wonderful kind human and that's that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's special so